O Father, God of mercy and love, righteous God, wise God, the God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations, forgiving our sins and blessing us with every good gift pertaining to this life and especially to the life that is to come. O God, You inhabit the highest heaven. You dwell in unapproachable light. Even the sun is pale compared to the light of Your glory. And yet in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we may approach You. And indeed, we may behold Your glory with unveiled faces. Your wisdom has no bounds. Your power is beyond all fathoming. Your mercy is infinite. Your love exceeds all we could hope or imagine. O Father, speak Your Word of truth to us today. Open our eyes and ears to see and hear Your greatness that we might give You thanks and praise that is fitting. Help us to humble ourselves before You that You may exalt us in Your grace. Give us Your gifts through the Scripture and at Your table. Renew Your covenant with us. We praise You, O Father, for You, for who You are and for all You have done through Your Son and by Your Spirit. Amen. I will continue reading from Mark's Gospel, the 8th chapter. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. But He sighed deeply in His spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And He left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we may not be hard-hearted like the disciples, that we, not, that we may not be blind and deaf as they were, but that we might understand, that You might open our hearts to receive Your truth and to be transformed by it, to be reoriented in the whole of our lives by the truth You speak to us through Your Word. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I know some of you have experience teaching. Uh, anyone who has taught before knows that sometimes you have a student who just doesn't get it. No matter how hard you try to explain the subject, uh, the student's eyes glaze over. You can tell it's just not clicking. And so as a teacher, you get frustrated. 
That's kind of how Jesus is with His disciples at this juncture. They've heard His public teaching. They've even had His private tutoring as He's taken them aside and instructed them privately uh, in the ways of His kingdom. They've gotten to see Him do many miracles by this point close up. Those miracles, of course, serving as object lessons to show them what the kingdom is all about. And yet still, they're clueless. They, uh, they just don't get it. They're blind. They're deaf. But you know, there's another kind of student that teachers sometimes have to deal with. And that is the student who won't listen to the teacher because he thinks he already knows it all. He's already got all the answers. And so he's stubborn and arrogant. He just doesn't listen to the teacher because he thinks he's already got it all figured out. And of course, that kind of student can also be very frustrating for the teacher. And that's how it was with Jesus the Pharisee. Now, in the classroom of Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21, uh, both of these kinds of students are side by side. And you can really see the teacher's exasperation with both of them. Uh, this chapter begins with a feeding miracle. There are uh, a lot of parallels here with the feeding miracle back in Mark chapter 6. These are really companion stories. These two stories clearly go together. In both stories, you have Jesus showing compassion on the hungry. In both stories, Jesus has them sit down. In both stories, Jesus miraculously feeds a multitude. Uh, in both stories, Eucharistic language is, is used, language that will show up later on uh, at the Lord's Supper with Jesus taking and blessing and breaking and distributing. In both stories following the feeding, uh, Jesus and his disciples cross the sea. So you've got something of a Passover feeding followed by an Exodus sea crossing. It's a Passover Exodus sequence in both cases. In both stories, then, you've got conflict with the Pharisees. You've got a conversation about bread. You've got a healing miracle. And then both cycles culminate with a confession of faith. At the end, of, so the story that started with. Jesus feeding the multitude in Mark 6 culminates at the end of chapter 7 with the crowd confessing He does all things well. The feeding story that began chapter 8 ends this chapter with Peter confessing that Jesus is indeed the Christ. So you've got these two companion pieces, these companion stories that parallel one another. Obviously, these two stories go together. In chapter 8, when Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples, we have a very interesting conversation recorded for us. It's here in the boat. Uh, on this boat ride, Jesus begins to unfold the meaning of what's been happening. And there are three main topics of conversation that come up, and we want to look at each one of these in turn. There's conversation about leaven. There's conversation about the loaves. And there's conversation about the leftovers, and particularly the, the numbers associated with the leftovers and indeed with both of the meals. So let's look at each one of those. The leaven, the loaves, and the leftovers. Jesus begins on this boat ride by warning His disciples. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the disciples really don't understand this warning. They think perhaps Jesus is scolding them because... They've forgotten to bring bread. I don't know how they could have forgotten when they had so much bread left over, but they've forgotten to bring bread with them, or actually they've only got one loaf with them. 
Jesus rebukes them here, but they're deaf to his warning. It's not really about bread for the stomach. It's about something else. The disciples are blind to what's right in front of them. And so he says to them, he scolds them, having eyes do not see and ears do not hear and do you not remember? He accuses them of blindness and deafness. And of course, this echoes various Old Testament passages where the prophets pass judgment against the people. Passages like Isaiah 6, which has already been quoted in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Passages like Jeremiah 5. Places in the Old Testament where the prophets come and declare that the people are ripe for judgment because God has spoken a clear word to them. He's shown them clearly who He is and what He's doing, and yet they're blind and deaf to it. And indeed, Jesus explains their blindness and their deafness here by calling them hard-hearted. The disciples are in danger of flunking out of Jesus' classroom. They're in danger of flunking discipleship 101. Uh, That language for being hard-hearted is language that is normally reserved for God's enemies. Like Pharaoh, uh, when he had enslaved the Israelites and would not let them go. Or like the Pharisees back in chapter 3 when they began plotting Jesus' death. It's because they were hard-hearted. What's ironic about this, and I think has to serve as a warning for us, is the disciples who have lived in such close proximity to Jesus, the disciples who have been insiders with Jesus all along, are functioning like outsiders because of their hardness of heart. They've had all this intimacy with Jesus, and yet it's all for nothing because of their hardness of heart. What does Jesus mean when He warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Some have pointed out, it's, it's, it's interesting to note, that in Aramaic, probably the language Jesus was speaking, the word for leaven sounds just like the word for teaching. And so some have suggested there is a pun here that Jesus is warning them about the spread of false teaching. Uh, in fact, Mark's recount, or, I'm sorry, Matthew's uh, account of this same story brings that out. It's a warning about the doctrine uh, of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. And certainly the Pharisees and the Herodians did indeed have false doctrine. They had a false view of the kingdom they were spreading. They had a very different kingdom vision than that of Jesus. The the, the kingdom vision of the Pharisees was really based on a distorted view of God's law. We've seen that. How they twisted God's law in such a way that they could exclude those they wanted excluded and include really only themselves and those just like them. And of course, in doing this, they were really perverting the whole purpose of Israel's existence, which was not to curse and exclude, but to bless and include. We saw how the Pharisees' oral law tradition, their rigorous uh, man-made traditions, were really put in place of God's law and used to crush people, weighing them down with heavy burdens they couldn't keep. Herod's vision for the kingdom was equally corrupt. It was based on a distorted view of power. Uh, Herod, uh, you you see this, I think, back in chapter 6 where Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. Instead of feeding his people, he feasts on them. Rather than serving his people as a king should, he forces them to serve him. In a few chapters, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going to talk about how the pagan rulers lord it over their subjects and it should not be so among his people. Well, that's Herod. Herod is a pagan-style ruler using his power in self-serving kinds of ways rather than sacrificial kinds of ways. I think this false 
kingdom vision that the Pharisees have is especially seen a few verses earlier in their desire for a sign. Mark 8, verses 11 and 12, they come to Jesus asking for a sign from heaven. Now, why do the Pharisees ask for a sign? What is a sign? Uh, All throughout Scripture, a sign is some extraordinary act of God that shows that God is now at work to deliver His people and to defeat their enemies. Really, the great paradigm for understanding what signs are in Scripture uh, is the Exodus. The plagues in Exodus were signs. They were signs that, yes, authenticated Moses as God's true spokesman and God's representative, but they are also signs that defeated Pharaoh and delivered the Israelites and indeed began a new phase in Israel's history. Signs are not magic tricks. And Jesus is not going to perform signs on demand. You know, you may know the old joke about the Christian and the atheist who are having a, a, a debate. And finally the atheist says, okay, God, if you exist, uh, you know, I want you to give me a sign. Strike me dead right now. And when nothing happens, the atheist says to the Christian, see, God doesn't exist. I have proved God does not exist. And the Christian comes back and says, no, actually what you prove is that God is gracious. <laughs> okay, That's clever. That's clever. And, and in, in a way, what the atheist is doing there is like what the Pharisees are doing here. But it's a perversion of what a sign is. It's a misunderstanding of what a sign is. We can't dictate terms to God. Signs are not magic tricks that God does to satisfy our curiosity. We can't come to God demanding signs. The Pharisees think they can set terms and say, okay, Jesus, people are starting to think you're the Messiah, the King. Hey, if you're the King, bring in the kingdom. Do it now. Send down fire from heaven on our enemies. Promote us, because of course we're the righteous ones. Promote us to places of great power and prominence. Do for us what you did for Israel in the Exodus. Of course, again, it's very ironic to come asking Jesus for signs when really his whole ministry to this point has been a series of signs. It's been one miracle after another. To come to Jesus and ask for signs would be like going to George Lucas and saying, hey, can you put some special effects in the next movie? That's all his movies are, special effects. seems like that's all Jesus has been doing is one sign after another. But these signs Jesus has been doing are not good enough. They don't meet the Pharisees' criteria. They want a sign that corresponds to their kingdom vision. Jesus has been doing signs that point to something else, a different kind of kingdom. Indeed, they're expecting Jesus to do signs that will overthrow the Romans, that will change the political landscape. It'd be like Republicans asking to have the Democrats in D.C. thrown out or vice versa. They want signs, the Pharisees do, that will reinforce their place of power and privilege. But Jesus isn't doing those kinds of signs. Indeed, Jesus has identified a different kind of enemy that Israel faces. It's not the Romans. That's not really the enemy of God's people. The great enemies God's people face are sin, death, and Satan. Those are the enemies Jesus has come to do battle with. And indeed, whereas the Pharisees would look for signs that would exclude the unrighteous nations, Jesus is doing signs, as we will see here, that are actually pointing to their inclusion. They don't get the ministry of Jesus. They come asking for signs because they've got a different kingdom agenda than Jesus. 
And indeed, I would actually say their vision for the kingdom is really satanic. When they come to Jesus, uh, they put Him to the test. The word for testing here in Mark 8 is the same word that was used back in chapter 1 when Satan tested Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, It's the same kind of thing. They're tempting Jesus. They're testing Him in a satanic way. Way. And indeed, we already know how the Pharisees are interpreting the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus has done exorcisms, they say, well, surely Jesus is just driving out demons using demonic power. They've already got their interpretive framework through which they look at everything Jesus does. It's Satan. When Jesus hears this demand from the Pharisees, He groans. He sighs deeply. This is a sign of his frustration. It's it's a sigh of frustration. This is the frustration of a teacher trying to teach a bunch of know-it-alls who just won't listen, who won't see what's right in front of them because they think they already have all the answers. And when the teacher says, no, you solved the problem wrong, they say, no, we don't care. We're going to do it this way. That groan on the part of Jesus really bundles up all his anger, sadness, and exasperation over their pride and unbelief and hypocrisy. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation. Interestingly, Jesus really treats the Pharisees here as representatives of that whole generation of Israelites. When we hear that language of this generation, what do you think of What should we think of? We should think of that generation of Israelites who perished in the wilderness. They saw the signs and wonders God did in Egypt. They came out of Egypt. God delivered them. God rescued them. And yet Psalm 95 describes what they did. How they hardened their hearts. How they put God to the test. There's that same word of of testing. And so God swore in Psalm 95, this generation shall not enter my rest. That generation saw God do signs and wonders and deliver them. But that generation put God to the test. And because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart, they perished. That's Psalm 95. Jesus is saying that history is replaying itself here with the Pharisees and the generation of Israelites they represent. Judgment will fall on this generation. Those who, like the Pharisees, persist in unbelief and hardness of heart and with their own kingdom agenda, instead of embracing, embracing Jesus' kingdom agenda, that generation will perish and they will not enter the new rest God is bringing in through Jesus. In fact, Jesus here seals it with an oath. Psalm 95, uh, God says, I swear this generation will not enter my rest. He seals it with an oath. Jesus does here as well. He uses an oath formula. Assuredly. Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And it's interesting, immediately following that is when Jesus gets on the boat to have conversation with His disciples and warn them about the Pharisees. Jesus won't meet the Pharisees again in Mark's Gospel until He gets to Jerusalem in that climactic week when their respective visions for the kingdom collide and it results in the crucifixion of Jesus at the end of Mark's Gospel. It's the last time Jesus has any direct dealings with the Pharisees until the cross. So Jesus warns His 
disciples don't be influenced by the kingdom vision held by your contemporaries, held by the Pharisees and the Herodians. But there's more to say about this. Why does Jesus warn them using this metaphor of leaven? Why does He speak of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, again, if you think back to the Old Testament Scriptures, there is a long and deep history to the use of leaven and the symbolism of leaven in the Scriptures. What is leaven? What's actually meant here? Leaven is, uh, in this context, something like sourdough starter that could be inserted into a fresh lump of dough and would permeate it and make it expand. It would make that dough grow, and so it multiplies itself. It leavens the whole lump. That's the idea. What does leaven represent in the Scriptures? Leaven represents a principle of growth and maturity. Symbolically, leaven can be used to represent good or evil, the growth of good or evil to maturity. Growing to goodness in maturity or growing to evil in maturity. That's what leaven represents. And it's interesting, you see both kinds of uses of leaven uh, in the Old Testament. At Passover, what were the Israelites to do? The Israelites were to get the leaven, the old leaven, out of their homes. They were to remove the leaven of Egypt out of their homes because Egypt's way of life had permeated Israel. Egypt's culture had permeated the people of Israel. And they had to make a clean break with the idolatry of Egypt. And so they had to get the leaven out. It was a sign of making a break with the old and starting something new. And so at Passover, they ate unleavened bread. And indeed, we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is attached to Passover in Exodus 13 this morning. But 50 days after Passover, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Israelites would celebrate with leavened bread. Leaven that would represent the growth of the new life that began with the Passover. The new culture got started with the Passover. Uh, The showbread that was kept in the tabernacle in the temple was leavened bread. Again, showing that God, while... They, were to, they started their year with Passover with unleavened bread, starting over a sign of their repentance. The new life God gave to them was to grow and to mature. And that's what the leavened bread would represent, that growth. So Israel would start over at Passover and then grow to maturity. But we also know that leaven can represent evil. There are places where it does. And this is one of them where uh, Jesus uses leaven to describe Growth in evil. Maturation in evil. It says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Don't let their unbelief and their corrupt vision of the kingdom permeate you and poison you and infect you. Don't let it grow. Don't let it grow. Cut it off. I would actually say here that there's really an implicit contrast between two different kinds of leaven. There's the leaven of the Herodians and the Pharisees with their kingdom vision, but there's also there's a different kind of leaven. There is the leaven of Jesus Himself. His teaching, His way of doing the kingdom, His new way of being Israel. And I say there's really an implicit contrast there because what has Jesus been doing in the last few chapters in Mark's Gospel? He's been making bread. He's been multiplying bread. Multiplying bread. Leaven. The disciples should embrace his leaven 
so their lives will be transformed by His love and His way of being the kingdom. Now, I think this warning to be aware of certain kinds of leaven really applies to all of us. It's really a warning for all of us. The leaven of unbelief, the leaven of pride, the leaven of hypocrisy, the leaven of a self-serving sort of consumeristic view of the Christian life. That kind of leaven is all around us. That kind of leaven has permeated our culture. That kind of leaven can even get into the church. And if that kind of leaven is not held in check by God's grace, if we are continually rooting out that kind of leaven by repentance, that kind of leaven can permeate us and destroy us. Little sins of selfishness or greed can grow into humongous sins that destroy your life. You know, whenever you see a really evil person, you know, like an axe murderer type, you need to remember they didn't start out that way. There were little sins that went unchecked that grew into great big sins. And maybe it's not always that extreme, but that's what happened. John Owen, the great Puritan, put it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be getting the old leaven out, the leaven of corruption and wickedness, or that leaven will take over your life. Parents need to know this. You know, when, when, when your kids are small, uh, there's all kinds of leaven in them, leaven of foolishness, leaven of rebellion. And through discipline, through instruction, your job as a parent is to root out that kind of leaven, that kind of evil leaven, to sweep it out of their lives, to sweep it out of their hearts. So the new leaven, the good leaven of Jesus' kingdom vision can grow in their lives and bring them to maturity in righteousness. This is even true culturally and corporately. Think about the sexual revolution. It started with the leaven of sexual permissiveness. Out of that sexual permissiveness as the leaven grew and permeated the culture, what grew? No-fault divorce. And the destruction of the family, really the breakdown of the family. Out of that grew the need for abortion on demand and the culture of death uh, that now has led to the slaughter of over a million innocent babies in the womb every year. And out of that, the leaven has grown into a movement to redefine marriage altogether to include things like homosexual partners. And we ask, where will it end? The truth is, it won't end, new and new perversions will come in until we make a break with the leaven of the sexual revolution altogether. We have to get the old leaven out. And that's what Scripture calls repentance. We have to sweep it out of our lives. So righteous leaven can be planted. So righteous leaven can grow. And think about that whole process. How does righteous leaven grow? If you plant the leaven of Jesus in your life, the leaven of self-control, the leaven of self-denial, the leaven of self-sacrifice. Those virtues grow in your life so you become more and more mature. You grow in a good way. You mature in righteousness and, and in faithfulness. So you go from being a faithful student to being a faithful worker, faithful with little, now faithful with more. A faithful and godly spouse than a faithful and godly and effective parent. And those righteous virtues more and more 
permeate your life and you grow up into maturity in righteousness. The leaven of Jesus, the leaven of His kingdom permeates the whole of your life. That's the leaven. That's what Jesus is describing. That's the warning He gives. But Jesus and His disciples also discuss bread. The disciples think Jesus is concerned with literal bread, that He is rebuking them for forgetting to bring bread. They admit they have no bread in verse 16. Verse 14 tells us they actually had one loaf uh, in the boat with them. We might wonder, did they really have no bread at all or did they have one loaf? What's going on here? Obviously, one loaf would not have been enough to feed all 13 in the boat. And it seems the disciples all of a sudden, when they realize this is their situation, get anxious and start to panic over their lack of bread. They're thinking this through in themselves. We're out here on this boat and we're going to go hungry. We don't have enough provision. And part of the reason Jesus rebukes them is because their anxiety, their worry over bread is needless. We've already seen what Jesus can do with a little bread, how he can multiply it into a lot. If he could feed these thousands with such small provisions, surely he can feed the 13 on the boat with one loaf. Their worries, their panic, their fears are not necessary. Their their sin, again, it's the sign of their unbelief, their hard-heartedness. But really, it's not bread for the stomach. It's not literal bread that Jesus is concerned about. That's what the disciples are thinking about, bread for the stomach. Jesus is concerned with their hearts. They're focused on bread to eat. Jesus wants them to know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now there's one loaf in the boat. Why would Mark tell us that? What is this one loaf? Who is this one loaf of bread in the boat? I think think Mark calls attention to this one loaf in the boat because he wants us to see the one loaf really is Jesus Himself. Jesus is the true bread of God that has come down from heaven. The true manna sent down from heaven to feed the world. He is the true bread of heaven who feeds His people, who feeds the world, who satisfies our deepest hungers. The disciples are blind to the One who is in the boat with them. Jesus has warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees, but they've already been infected with it. They're not trusting Jesus. They're not relying on Him to provide all they need. They're not relying on Jesus to sustain them. They're not embracing His kingdom vision, His mission. They don't see who He is. They don't get His identity. They're blind to His love and to His power. They don't see that Jesus is not only the bread maker, He is indeed the bread of heaven sent to nourish them and the world. Then in a further way of exposing their unbelief, Jesus does something fascinating. He turns to a discussion of the leftovers. Indeed, He calls attention to the numbers associated with each of the feeding miracles. Jesus here has fun with these numbers. And He calls on His disciples to think about the numbers and what they might mean. This is sometimes called numerology. The study of numbers and what they mean. Now, moderns are put off by this. You know, for a modern person, a number is just a number. That's all. Uh, But the ancients, pre-modern people, uh, people more rooted in a symbolic and sacramental vision of the world understood this, that a number is not just a number. A number carries symbolic freight. It has a symbolic meaning. 
And of course, historically, the church has always seen this. The numbers here, the numbers of loaves, the number of people, the numbers of leftovers, all those numbers matter. They're all significant. Jesus calls attention to the numbers here for a reason. Not just some general reason to show His provision, but specific reason. He wants them to understand the meaning of these feeding miracles. And so indeed here, Jesus is chiding His disciples for not seeing the symbolism of what's happened. Jesus is basically saying your interpretation of what's happened is too flat. It's too one-dimensional. It's too minimalistic. You need a richer, deeper, more symbolic understanding. Jesus here is demanding a symbolic interpretation of His miracle. So when I give that to you, don't think I'm off the track. Jesus here requires He wants them to see the numbers involved in the feeding miracles mean something. The numbers hold the key. Listen again to this sequence here. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Why can't you do the math? Why can't you figure out what these miracles mean? Now, the disciples didn't get it. Can we do better? Can we do better than the disciples did at this juncture? You know, the book of Proverbs says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the honor of a king to search it out. It's our kingly duty to try to figure this out. It's what kings do. Kings solve riddles. They puzzle over things. They find a solution. And that's how the king gains wisdom to rule. Now, I won't tell you I figured this out on my own. Certainly not. I'll give you my best shot, but I want you to know I've had a lot of help figuring this out. Uh, so, But I want to give you what I think is the best reading of this. And I've already hinted at it before when we talked about this previously, but I want to spell it all out for you here. you got these two feeding miracles, Mark 6 and Mark 8. The first feeding miracle is Jewish. It takes place in Jewish territory. The numbers that are used are numbers associated with the Jews. The second feeding miracle here in chapter 8 is Gentile. It takes place in a Gentile territory with a Gentile multitude. The numbers that are used are global. Put the two miracles together, and what do you get? If you add them together, what you see is Jesus is forming a new covenant community composed of both Jew and Gentile, a new family in which the Jew and Gentile distinction will fade away. Now look at it in detail. See how it works. The first miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And indeed, Jesus has them sit in ranks of 50. So number five is prominent. Indeed, that language of having them sit in ranks or companies of 50 is reminiscent of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 13, verse 18 says the Israelites marched through the wilderness five in a rank, in military array. The number five then is associated with Israel. The number five is used repeatedly in the dimensions of the tabernacle, if you read further in the book of Exodus. Five is the number of the Pentateuch, the Torah. We talked about the five books of Moses. The number 12 is also obviously a Jewish number. The leftovers fill 12 baskets corresponding, of course, to Israel's 12 tribes or perhaps the 12 loaves of showbread that were kept in the temple. Jesus is forming a new table of showbread with these leftovers. 
By contrast, in Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000 is Gentile. It happens in a Gentile region with a Gentile multitude. Jesus has just done miracles for a Gentile. Now he feeds the Gentile. And the number four is prominent. Why four? Well, because four is the number of the world. When Jesus talks about all the nations coming to his kingdom, he talks about the four points of the compass. They will come from north, south, east, and west into the kingdom. Throughout Scripture, the world is described as having four corners, or it speaks of the four winds. So the number 4,000 describes all the people of the earth, all the nations of the earth, spread out to the ends of the earth. So you've got the number four. You've also got the number seven in this miracle. Seven loaves at the beginning. Seven big baskets full of leftovers at the end. Seven, of course, connects with the creation week in Genesis chapter 1. And, uh, seven weeks, or seven days there in that creation week in Genesis chapter 1. Seven has to do with fullness or with completion. The fullness of the world, we could say here. The whole of the creation. Uh, the seven baskets of leftovers might connect with the table of nations. If you were in Dr. Lightheart's Sunday school class this morning, you got a little numerology. We talked about this kind of thing a little bit. Um, the seven baskets of leftovers would seem to connect with the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10 gives all the nations of the world after the Tower of Babel, and it's 70 nations. Symbolically in Scripture, there are 70 nations. The Feast of Tabernacles, which is to show that God will send a sacrifice for the whole world. Seventy bulls are sacrificed in the course of that week to show that Jesus will be the Savior of the world. Not just Israel, but the nations. So you've got 70 nations, symbolically in Scripture. Seven is a tithe of the nations, a tenth. And of course, all throughout Scripture, the tithe represents the whole. It's part for whole. The seven here represent all the nations of the world. Now back in Mark chapter 6, the feeding follows a miracle done for a synagogue ruler. Here in Mark chapter 8, it, it follows the feeding miracle follows a miracle done for a Gentile. You've got other de details that reinforce the Gentile nature of this feeding miracle in Mark chapter 8. Back in Mark chapter 6, the word that was used for uh, where they kept the leftovers described a, a little pouch that Jewish men would carry around with them. So each one of the disciples had a little bit of bread to carry around in his pouch after the feeding miracle was done. But the word for the big baskets of leftovers they had after this feeding in Mark chapter 8 really describes something that Gentiles would typically use in their markets, these large hampers that they would use to carry things around. They were big enough for a man to fit inside of. The same word is used in the book of Acts when Paul, the apostle, has to escape out of the city. He's let down over the city wall in a basket, the same kind of basket that's used here in Mark chapter 8. It's a Gentile thing generally. In Mark chapter 8, when Jesus has compassion on the people, He desires to feed them because He says many have come from far away. That's code language for the Gentiles in verse 3. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul speaks of the Gentiles, he describes, describes them as those who are far away who have now been brought near. They've been brought to the table. And indeed, that's what Jesus is doing here. 
You've got Jesus feeding the Jews. You've got Jesus feeding the Gentiles. It shows you the kingdom agenda of Jesus, which is to bring Jew and Gentile together. He did not just come for Israel. He came for the nations. And out of Israel and the nations, he will form a new Israel, a new humanity. And indeed, I think you see this if you put the two miracles together. Both feeding miracles involve both bread and fish. That's what's on the menu each time. Bread comes from the land. Fish come from the sea. Bread represents Israel. They're the people of the land. The people of the promised land, of the holy land. They're the bread people. Think again of the showbread on the table in the tabernacle. They're the bread people, the land people. Fish all throughout the Old Testament represent Gentiles. Throughout the Old Testament, the sea and the sea creatures symbolize the Gentile nation. Jesus serves up bread and fish in the same meal because He's uniting Jew and Gentile. He ultimately plans to include both at His table and to join them together at His table into one new community, one family, one new covenant people. And indeed, even if you put the numbers of the miracles together, you see this. In one feeding, there were five loaves. In the second, there are seven. Five plus seven equals twelve. Jew plus Gentile equals God's new humanity, the church. The body of people Jesus came to form. Now understand, Jesus is not just playing games here. Again, these numbers reveal His kingdom. They reveal His mission. You want to know why these numbers matter? Let me put it to you this way. You know, we might ask, well, what's, what's the big deal? Why do this math? Why do this numerology? Why do the numbers matter? Ferguson, Missouri. They matter because of things like Ferguson, Missouri. Think about what happened in Ferguson recently. You've got a whole town that was destroyed by racial strife. I mean, whatever the facts of that case turn out to be, You've got a town that was destroyed by racial strife. And I dare say that's probably representative of what could have happened in any number of American cities and towns. And everybody's saying, what's the answer to this racial strife? Why can't we get along with each other? Why do people of different races have to clash like this? Look, what can bring us together? Only one thing. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can reconcile people of different races and ethnicities and make them all one. The church of Jesus Christ is the one true melting pot. The world out there is a segregated place where people hate one another if they don't look like each other or, or, or if they're not part of the same class or ethnicity. The world is a segregated place full of hatred we naturally tend to want to clump together with people just like us. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees wanted. An exclusive kingdom for people just like themselves. Their nationalism. They didn't want to make room for the Gentiles in the kingdom. Because those people were unclean. That kind of leaven is still with us today. By compassionately feeding Jews and Gentiles, Jesus shows He is forming a new humanity, a new Israel in which race and ethnicity and socioeconomic class are irrelevant to your status, your standing, and your place at the table. There's a place for everyone. 
whatever your color, whatever your ethnicity, whatever socioeconomic class, there's a place for you at the table of Jesus if you'll just come to Him. It's interesting, Jesus does this through food. He's going to reconcile Jew and Gentile through food. It's noteworthy that the civil rights movement in the South began at lunch counters. Because the whole question was, who can I eat with? Where can I eat? Can blacks and whites eat together? Can they share a table? Jesus shows us here. Yes, they can. Jew, Gentile, black, white, whatever. We can come together at the same table through Jesus. Jesus begins here in Mark 6 and in Mark 8, reconciling all people to Himself and reconciling all people to one another through shared meals. And that's really what the Eucharist is all about. These meals point to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. Where all those who belong to Jesus from every nation under heaven come together at a common table as a new family and all those old divisions, the old, the segregation of the old world is all done away with. And I think there's a lesson here for us. Again, we have a tendency to want to hang around with people just like us. People of our own color. People of our own age and stage of life. People who think just like we do and who will reinforce all of our biases and our, our ways of, of conceiving the world. And one thing we do try to do as a church is do a lot of events that involve the whole body. It's not always wrong to do the age and stage thing, but we want to have a lot of events as a church that involve all of us. Because the church is one big family. No matter your age, your race, your ethnicity. And I also want you to think about this. Jesus here uses the table to bring about reconciliation. What are ways that you might use your own family table, the table in your home, the table where you and your family have meals together? What are some ways you could use your table to extend this kingdom vision of Jesus? There's all these leftovers at the end of these miracles. Jesus doesn't want His disciples to be empty-handed. He wants us to have bread in our hands that we can take to the world so we can feed a, a world that is dying of hunger so we can feed the world around us the life-giving bread that is Jesus Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the table He has set before us. We thank You that at His table, there's no Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor. We thank You that at His table, we are all one in Him. May it be so in our lives. May it be so in your church. May it be so in the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for all your goodness to us. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our risen Savior, who has conquered death by his death and given us new life now and forevermore. We rejoice that Satan has been vanquished and that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our comforter, who strengthens and sustains us. We thank you for adopting us as your children in baptism and we thank you for the means of grace and the fellowship of your church. Lord, save and defend your church that you purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through the Word and the Holy Sacraments. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. We ask that you would bless all peoples and make your salvation known to all nations. To this end, Lord, we ask you to raise up faithful servants to proclaim the good news of the gospel at home and in distant lands. Bring peace to places where there is conflict like the Ukraine, Iraq, Syria, Gaza, Somalia, and others. And strengthen the faith of your people who are oppressed and afflicted. We thank you, Father, for giving the nations to your Son as his inheritance. And we pray that you would subdue your enemies with the power of the gospel. Preserve our own nation in righteousness and true honor. Forgive us of when we have strayed from your will and grant us repentance to turn from our sin. We pray for our president, Congress, courts, and all officials to whom you have granted authority. We ask that you would anoint them with the gifts of your spirit to rule with righteousness and justice, and that you would deliver us from the rule of ungodly men. Almighty God, we especially pray for your blessing upon this congregation and all who worship and serve here. Give us the humility of Christ and make us mindful of the needs of others. Teach us to be faithful and fervent in our prayers for one another. Grant our pastor and our officers the wisdom and strength needed to carry out the duties you've given them. Provide for us the resources we need to do the work of your kingdom. Bless our musicians, our Sunday school teachers, and all who give of their time and talents that we may all be devoted to serving one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Help us to show your hospitality to all whom we meet, especially those who are lonely and alone. Strengthen our marriages that we might show forth the beauty of Christ's love for the church and help all parents to be faithful and diligent in training their children in the fear of the Lord. Bless all expectant mothers with health and peace and comfort those who desire to have children but cannot. Help all the children of this church to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. God of all comfort, we bring before you all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We especially lift up to you Michelle Stevenson, Ashton Motes, Ashley Hamblin, Kia and her mom, Steve and Heather Dorning, Bethany Laughlin, Tony Patellis, David Jarmilot, Pastor Tom Clark, Suzanne Shelton, John Harlan. We ask you to provide gainful employment for the unemployed and the underemployed, and especially those who are looking for new jobs. Tim Hamblin, Jacob Hamby, and Joseph Norris. We pray for our aging grandparents and parents, those who are caring for them. And Lord, we ask you to comfort all who are grieving the loss of loved ones, especially the Shokus and Kia's family in the passing of her Aunt Lena and the Wells family at the loss of their baby. Grant us the consolations of which we have need and overrule our present sufferings to our eternal good. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray as our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.